0: The history of Europe is found in the words you speak every day. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Dutch linguist Gaston Doren takes us language spotting. He tells us how the languages of Europe have borrowed and stolen from each other for centuries to become what they are today. Of course, even with a dictionary, a language never really stands
1: still. One of the big changes over the last century, let's say, is the leveling off of dialects. Dialects of all these languages are becoming more similar, more like each other many of the world's smaller languages have reasons to be threatened by the rise of English as the common
0: tongue. But in Ireland, the old Celtic language that had to be hidden from colonial rulers is now a required course in school.
2: The Irish language is so close to our hearts, and it's an expression of what we stand for as Irish people.
3: We'll also get tips for taking in the best that Ireland has to offer this year. Ireland is not a sun destination. It's a fun destination. We're glad you could join us. It's Travel with Rick Steves.
0: One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com Rick ricksteves. The language barrier can actually be a fun part of your travels. Coming up in the hour ahead, we meet a Dutch linguist who grew up speaking Limburgish as well as Dutch before he picked up German, French, Spanish, and, thankfully for us, English. Gaston Dorn takes us on a tour of Europe's linguistic landscape. In this book, he shares how 60 different languages each have a story to tell about the history and the modern-day culture of the people speaking them today. We'll also get insider tips for planning a trip to Ireland this year, where it's the centennial of the important Easter Rising in Dublin. The Irish clearly have a way with words. Let's start today's travel, Rick Steves, with a closer look at the Irish language and how it now plays an important role in the national identity. Dara Hurley grew up on the Dingle Peninsula, speaking Irish as his first language. He's our guide to speaking in Irish. Dara, welcome. Welcome.
2: I'm saying, uh, hi, how are you all today? It's, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me.
0: I'm thankful you speak English, too. <laughs> 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 Say that again in Gaelic, what you just said.
2: Dara, um,
0: how many people on the planet do you think could understand what you just said?
2: I'd say about a million people, give or take. There are probably about 130,000 people in Ireland who actually speak the Irish language, but there are probably upwards of a million who have a good comprehension of the Irish language. It has gone less um, up to the time of the famine, and after the famine we had a mass um, emigration and mass deaths in the Irish language, where a lot of it died. And in the last 20 to 25 years there's been a huge revival of the Irish language. Now we have great grants in place for people to speak the Irish language.
0: So a million people understand Gaelic now. Is the number going up or going down?
2: The number is going up, definitely. It's going in the right direction. It's a very slow and steady pace, but there are great incentives in place for people to learn the Irish language now. If you're doing your leaving certificate, which is the equivalent of your, um, your finishing school, you get an extra 10% on your points through your educational system if you do it through the Irish language. Oh, they
0: favor you if you speak Ir- they favor Irish you speak in higher education on the island of Ireland. That's correct. Uh, the practical person in me says, why bother to learn a language that only a million people speak when you can learn English? Oh, what is it that drives a person to speak a language that only a, a I suppose for centuries
2: speak? it's been, you know, it ummed down the Irish language. We've been told that we can't be Irish, we can't speak the Irish language. Whereas now we have a chance to express ourselves, and the Irish language is so close to our hearts, and it's an expression of what we stand for as Irish people, yeah. which is why it's such an important
0: part of our history. So it's an assertion of being Irish. Absolutely, it's to speak the language, it and really you're is. proud of being Irish, and it's just right to have that language.
2: Totally and utterly. And again, because it's not vastly spoken, it's like having our own private language in some respects. <laughs>
0: which now, can be very if, convenient. if a traveller wants to hear Irish spoken, what part of Ireland would you go to?
2: There are a variety of pockets of Ireland and um, they're called Gaelthacht areas and Gaelthacht is the, the Irish for an Irish-speaking area. Dingle.
0: So in English, I would say Gale tech a, a Gael. Gaelic-speaking region, literally. Precisely. It's yeah. literally
2: translated and Dingle is one of those areas. Now,
0: are these subsidised by the government so that uh, people are sort of having an easier time economically there if yeah. they live the traditional
2: ways? There are grants given to schools to encourage the Irish language and they're also... Um, grants given to um, local communities in order to have language programs, so on and so forth. A lot of people participate in those.
0: So the central government in Dublin is encouraging this.
2: Absolutely. And it's effective, what they're doing. It's widely encouraged. And again, the Irish language is, unlike um, past centuries, it's now cool again. So this is a natural revival for the Irish language, which is great.
0: Good. That's interesting. Now, it's interesting to me when I go to Ireland that I'm so charmed by the gift of Gab but the gift of Gab, really, in a, in a nicer way to put it, I think, is the art of conversation. Now, help me out on this, uh, Dara, because my theory is when you speak to an Irishman who speaks Gaelic as his first language and is speaking to you in English, he thinks with a template, a linguistic template of Gaelic, and then he's translating it literally and talking to you in English, but he's more interesting and entertaining in his English language because it's got this Gaelic kind of structure, Does that make any Mm. sense to you?
2: I understand what you're saying, um, but I think that the the Irish are just natural born
0: talkers. So Uh, whether they speak Gaelic or English. uh,
2: Precisely. I know people who were born with English and people who were born with Irish, and they can tell a story as good as the next fella, (laughs) so it's (laughs) the love of
0: storytelling?
2: (laughs) I think it's the love of storytelling and and the, the art of storytelling. I mean, storytelling dates back to the very early times in Ireland, and we're
0: big into our Irish jokes and our
2: Irish culture
0: and... But my sense is you go to a pub and and it's driven not by a, a screen with a with a sports event but by people talking to each That's other. That's something I love about Ireland and no disrespect to the US I love it over here and I do a lot of
2: things here but I walk into a bar here and there's 50 flat screen televisions in front of me and everybody's staring at them. <laughs> you walk into a bar in Ireland and more often than not there's no television. There's Irish music and there's interaction and there's a beer in front of you and you know there's a, a great sign in a pub in um, Northern Ireland that says no Wi-Fi please talk to each other. <laughs> that's a perfect example of
0: uh, what a an Irish bar thing. should and for. as a traveller what a great entree <laughs> into, getting into connecting with the locals absolutely yeah. is it right that you'd better sit at the bar than at a table if you want to absolutely, speak with people absolutely you know, that's a
2: practical tip you it? sit at the bar you you walk in and I'll use Dingle as an example because it's my hometown but you walk in there's an old fella sitting at the bar counter and he's the best guy to talk to because he knows everybody in the room he knows who's a tourist where's to go what the weather is going to be like tomorrow and even if he doesn't know he'll lie about it and it's all part of the entertainment <laughs>
0: entertainment he's like he's like an entertainment uh, there's machine there's some things money just, can't, just can't buy you, <laughs> you know. cannot buy that Forever buy a drink or, card, or yeah. you know Dara is our guide to the Irish language right now on Travel with Rick Steves share your own stories about Ireland in our listeners forum you'll find it in the radio section at ricksteves.com when you think about Gaelic, there's I think there's like originally seven Gaelic languages, weren't there? What, what, what's the status seven, of all the well, different Gaelic and, languages? And now really, I mean,
2: you have, the, I suppose, that the prominent um, Gaelics that are, there's Irish, which is in Ireland, and there's Scots Gaelic. And they're probably the two most prominent um, survivors. Le- survivors.
0: Which With, ones have died?
2: Um, well, within those barriers, you have different dialects which exist within those. Like in Ireland, we have four different dialects. Okay. So, for example, in the south of Ireland, I say too. Uh-huh. which is, how are you? And the same phrase in Northern Ireland is, ké wiltu oh, so, so it's exactly quite the same language, but though. it's a totally different dialect. So there's a variety of different dialects, and um, I think the stronger ones are probably Munster, Irish, which is the Irish which I'm used to, and Mm -hmm. there's the Northern Irish and the Scots Gaelic. And they're probably two different Irishes, but three different dialects. Can you understand Scots Gaelic? Not very well. It sounds like a
0: Gaelic language, but it's like German and English or something.
2: Precisely. It just sounds like a totally different language. So there
0: is a living Scottish Gaelic language today. Yes. Irish, there's Welsh that's still spoken. Yeah. And then Cornish is dead. Britain in the west of France is dead. And there was Gaelic in northwest Spain. And that's dead as well at So, this point. That's, you know. so really, uh, the healthy languages, among the Gaelic languages, Wales and Ireland... Yeah, Scotland, even actually, the, even think.
2: even the Welsh Gaelic is is on a, on a so very Irish is run the down, thing. you know, yeah. and Scots Gaelic is still quite popular in Scotland. And I think again because it's associated with your with your freedom, or so to speak, you know. Given so our, our latest referendum, what's another
0: example of how the Irish government is is promoting and safeguarding the Irish language?
2: Well, we have a lot of Irish colleges in Ireland, and as I say, one of the major factors is the fact that they give you ten percent on your end of year, right. um, you know, marks to encourage you to speak the Irish language. There are also a lot of grants given to local communities to speak the Irish language there's grants for the local radio programmes to be in the Irish language as grants to the local television programs again to televised programs And I heard that the laws in Ireland
0: need to be written first in... First in Gaelic, in Gaelic. or Gaelic. first in
2: Irish and then translated into English. They're
0: written originally in the Irish and then translated.
2: That's correct, yeah. And also another um, major thing that they introduced recently well in the last 10 years was that all place names in Ireland would have both their place names in the Irish language and in the English language.
0: And do people generally agree with that? They're Absolutely.
2: That. Yeah. So Overall, right. there's obviously been a little bit of controversy. Now there's
0: some interesting sounds and gaelic i think when you're trying to pick up some some gaelic and it's kind of as a tour guide it must be fun to be teaching people
2: it can be fun yeah there's some basic irish words which are are very easy to use you know key irish words for us would be falte falta, which is welcome yeah and then another big one would be um slante
0: and that you say in a bar when you get a beer it's like slante
2: is it's basically a toast and if it's literally translated the word means health a well, lot of people say cheers, but the, the reality is cheers has no actual meaning, whereas the word slanta is to your health.
0: Now, a lot of Irish that speak English, they've got a, a little bit of a, you wouldn't say, speech impediment, but they <laughs> pronounce things kind of funny because they speak Gaelic first.
2: They do, and they find that um, a lot of people who don't speak Irish as a first language, or don't speak Gaelic as a first language, they find it difficult to pronounce the CHs. Like the prime minister of our country, the equivalent of our prime minister, is called a Taoiseach. And at the end of that, there's a CH, so it's Taoiseach, whereas a lot of people who don't speak Irish say Taoiseach.
0: Okay, so you can identify if they've Absolutely. And, and TH is tough
2: too, isn't it? Yeah, TH is like a Tach. Tach. Know, tach. And so. then say, he came Honig she. So there's a TH for he came Honig she.
0: So can you say, like if you say three and a third, what would you say? <laughs> In the Irish language.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, if you were saying 33, for example, yeah. it would be Truc a Tree. Truc a Tree. Truch a Tree. All right. So, thirty-three, train a third.
0: Edward the third. <laughs>
2: Edward the third. <laughs> Edward the third, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that th- yeah. The H, H doesn't exist it. in the English if you speak Irish. This is the problem. Oh, that's the deal. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's why exactly. you hear the uh, Irish referring <laughs> yeah. to Edward the <laughs> so third. So, the is...
2: Irish that don't, uh, that speak Gaelic first don't pronounce
0: their H- Hs. <laughs> <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking Irish here with Dara Herlihy. And Dara, a big part of the Irish culture and language is the music. I know you're a musician. Uh, when you go to a pub a lot of times you'll hear Gaelic being sung in the pub, even in a place that's not a Gael tech.
2: Absolutely, and the, the Irish language is definitely, a, has a huge revival on it in the last couple of years, and particularly the last 20 or so. And to hear Irish songs and to hear people speaking Irish, it's, it's like listening to poetry. It's know? like poetry and it connects the past with the present. Yeah, it really does. Even if you don't understand the words of an Irish song, there's something that, that connects with your soul uh, when it comes to the Irish language. There's something far deeper than the words that are being said.
0: You experience that in a pub, especially with a lament. Can we close Especially just, like, after alcohol. A little alcohol and <laughs> a little lament with a lot of it's Irish It's all part of the friends. mix. <laughs> can we just close with one stanza of some uh, Irish lament so Abs- we can hear a little bit of your beautiful language?
2: Absolutely. There's a lovely song called "Shemal Echme Ilamar, political love song written in the 1840s. It's over 21 verses. It's absolutely beautiful. I won't get into the history of it now. I know you're restricted with time, but I'll sing a verse for you. Bim <laughs>
0: So what were the general words of
1: that?
2: If you literally translate that, it's noble, proud, young horseman, warrior unsaddened, of most pleasant content, a swift, moving hand, quick in a fight, slaying the enemy and smiting the strong.
0: Dara, just talking to you reminds me what a joy it is to go to Ireland and of course you can see the castles and the galleries and the museums but if you don't get into a pub and share a beer with a local right there at the bar and speak some Gaelic, you're Uh, missing the Irish boat. uh,
2: So when are we going to see you in Ireland again, Rick?
0: Before you can imagine. I'll see you there soon. Dara, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to it. Thank you. Sláinte. have fun with more of the languages of Europe in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Up next, tourism experts from Ireland. Take your calls at 877-333-7425. They'll help you plan the perfect visit to the Emerald Isle and tell us what we shouldn't miss this year in Ireland. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Any year is a great time to visit Ireland, and we're about to find out why this year is especially important. We're joined now by our old pal Stephen McPhillamy. He's a proud Irishman and an expert storyteller. Stephen also operates a youth hostel in Derry and a bed-and-breakfast in Dingle. And Pascal Fitzpatrick is a tour guide from County Monaghan on the Republic side of the border in Ulster. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Rick. Hi, Rick. Great to be here.
3: 2016 is uh, the centennial of the Easter Rising. What does that mean, Stephen? Well, on Easter Monday, 1916, a group of about 1,000 rebels took over the centre of Dublin and, and declared Ireland, the whole island, a free and independent republic. And they hoisted the Irish flag and they read out a proclamation of independence which stated that all children of the nation shall be cherished equally. Um, Britain obviously didn't want this to happen because it controlled Ireland, so it crushed the rebellion pretty heavily, and it lasted for only five days. So it was really an aborted rebellion that, well, it was just put down, but then it sort of got the ball rolling, and in the next decade, Ireland actually won its independence. Ireland's an interesting country where sometimes you can win even when you lose. They lost the rebellion, but they would ultimately win independence Mm -hmm. Uh, some years later. The leaders of the rebellion I think hoped that when they started the rebellion in Dublin that it would spread to the four corners of the country. That didn't happen. And they were crushed and they eventually surrendered. But they executed the heroes. And didn't that really become counterproductive? That's a good point. They executed the leaders of the rebellion in Kilmainham Jail in Dublin. And that turned public opinion mostly in favor of the rebels. Wow. So if the British had played their cards right after the Easter Rising in 1916,
0: they may have come up with more of a workable compromise without having the War of Independence in
3: the next decade. Absolutely. They could have sent these guys off to Australia to shear sheep or to Pakistan
4: or something. And it would have been tougher for the
3: Irish yeah. to come back later and, and when
0: uh, Pascal, what's your take on that?
4: Well, that's absolutely right. It was whenever they took the, the leaders of the 1916 to Kilmainham Jail and executed them, basically. Mm-hmm. That rallied everybody else around.
0: Now, another big uh, centennial in 2016 is the Battle of the Somme, one of the, perhaps the bloodiest battle of uh, World War I. Those of us who watch Downton Abbey who've seen scenes of the Battle of the Somme, and we also see how it was the upper class and the lower class that went to fight for the king, for the English king. Did Ireland uh, fight and suffer uh, casualties didn't. from the war?
4: There was lots of Irish men went and fought for England uh-huh. in that. They were going fighting, believing that they were going to get home rule. So we had Irish men fighting... In good spirit for the crown. Oh yes. Hoping that
0: when the war was over they'd reassess and Ireland would be free and it didn't happen in 1918.
4: That's right. So we had a case of where we had Irish men in Dublin fighting British soldiers and Irish men over there fighting with British soldiers.
0: Isn't that something? So the execution of the, the Nathan Hales and Patrick Henrys yeah. of Irish independence in 1916, the betrayal from an Irish point of view of the crown after Ireland helped England in World War I and, and suffered a lot of casualties, that would have all added up to That's stirring true. public sentiment to work for Irish independence a little Absolutely. after that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephen McPhillamy and Pascal Fitzpatrick about Ireland. Our phone number is 877 and Danielle's calling in from Santa Monica in California. Danielle, are you planning a trip to Ireland?
5: I am. I'm planning my honeymoon to Ireland.
0: Ooh, that sounds interesting. Tell us more.
5: Um, in June, uh, my fiancé and hopefully then-husband will be traveling to Ireland and will be there for two weeks. We're hoping to do uh, a road trip. I was wondering, how easy is it, if you are driving around Ireland in June... Is it possible to change plans? We have a couple of places that we know we want to hit. but We don't know how many days we want to spend in each location, and we're not sure lodgings-wise if it's easy to get lodgings at that time of year.
0: So that's a big question for any traveler. Uh, We all want to be free as the breeze and to be able to stay a little longer here and uh, head out a little early there, but we also don't want to be stuck without a good hotel or bed and breakfast. Stephen McPhillamy, what are the pros and cons of nailing it down or keeping it free?
3: Well, June is going to be busy, Danielle. So that's point number one. It will definitely be busy. And the key spots like, say, Galway, Westport, Dublin, Dingle, if you're going to those towns, you'll have a little bit of difficulty in changing your plans at the last minute. It depends on how you book them, of course. I do have a guest house myself, and when people cancel last minute doesn't make us super happy. (laughs) Well, you lose your first night's pay, don't you normally? That can happen, of course. So when
0: you do make a reservation, if you're prepaying it, make sure you know what the penalties are. Some uh, accommodations are more flexible. Others are very, very strict. But you have to understand the perspective of the the small guest house or B&B owner. If he books it, and then he turns people away because he's full, and then two days before you cancel out, He's stuck with an empty room, and
3: and he doesn't need to bear that price. You have to pay for that room even if you don't use it. Yeah, so most hoteliers would charge you a percentage or else they'd take the first night's payment Mm -hmm. or first night's stay from you. There are websites out there, third-party websites, that you can book your hotel on or guesthouse on. They're so big, uh, these websites, that they have a lot of influence over Mm -hmm. B&B. So they can sometimes, in their terms and conditions, let you cancel, but you'd want to read the small print there. But other than those four big sites... You might be all right to change last minute. If you get to one town you like it a lot, you can extend for a night. I would say though, in fairness to Irish B and B and hotel owners, most are very accommodating, mm-hmm. and they'll and we'll do whatever we can to make our guests feel happy and let them travel on to their preferred destination.
0: Danielle, I'd say it's pretty important to have a cell phone so you can be talking to your accommodations as you go. And uh, as Stephen mentioned if you're going to the famous touristy places, you're not alone, and that's where it'll be tougher. It's an interesting call, but I hope that you have a good time.
5: Well, thank you, and thank you so much for the information. That does help.
0: You bet. Best wishes. Thank you. Take care. Charlie's calling in from uh, Mountaintop in Pennsylvania. Charlie, thanks for your call.
5: Thank you for uh, letting me uh, ask a question here. Yeah. Uh, My wife and I are seasoned travelers, and we have driven around mainland Europe and Iceland. We found no problems with U.S. credit cards covering the CDW. I'm just, I, my concern is where I've seen they don't cover the CDW in Ireland. I'd like to know if, if there any credit card that we could possibly get so we don't have to pay twice as much for a rental car.
0: CDW meaning collision damage waiver insurance coverage, meaning you can bring back your rental car with a dent and not have to pay anything, right? Correct. Do either of you know anything about CDW for American travelers?
4: Anytime I hired a car out back home in Ireland, I always had to take out extra insurance cover. Do you pay extra for CDW? Otherwise, you have
0: a deductible, which can be the value of the car. That's
4: right, and it's always recommended to take it out. It's not that expensive. So
0: Ireland, I understand, is uh, the only country in Europe not covered by credit cards from a CDW. I wonder why that is.
3: I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh,
0: I I find Ireland is uh, a country with uh, narrow roads, and uh, maybe
4: it would definitely be worth getting <laughs> it would be
0: worth so you know i think charlie you're going to have to pay extra for the cdw or have the stress of knowing if you bring back a dent you're going to have to pay for it and they'll have you over a barrel cuz they can charge you pretty much what they want okay. um, before you rent your car shop around and find out what are the cdw policies for the peace of mind of having that when i rent a car it's i generally have a, a rental policy that includes the cdw but you'll want to know that before you commit
5: Okay, because I do want to be able to not have to worry about the car too much, especially oh. when driving in Ireland is different than driving in a lot of other places.
0: Yeah, I, <laughs> especially in Ireland, you want to be comfortable because the roads are narrow, and uh, to me, there's so many things
3: to look at. It's just very distracting, and, and it's nerve-wracking. You want to be able to be relaxed about that. I think the prices are good on car rentals back home, though. I've started recently mm-hmm. renting cars a lot from my own travel in Ireland, and I think... The prices are a lot less yeah. expensive than they are over here. So, Charlie, where are you thinking of going?
5: We were thinking about driving all over the place Dublin, uh, Killarney, and a couple other cities.
3: All
0: right. Well, you'll find that the we'll island is. Look around. You'll <laughs> find that the island is uh, not that big, but the uh, traffic can be slow going when you get off the main roads and uh, give yourself an extra
3: time. And uh, I wouldn't drive after dark in Ireland in the small roads. No, Ooh, prob- okay. No, nice. you're better off. And, as we always say to the tourists when they're heading off, keep her between the ditches.
0: <laughs> keep her between <laughs> the ditches. That's a nice uh, farewell from our Irish guide. Thanks for your call, Charlie. Well,
5: thank you very much.
0: Okay, bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Ireland with Stephen McFillamy and Pascal Fitzpatrick. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Mary's calling in from Edmonds in Washington. Mary, thanks for your call.
5: Sure, thanks for allowing me to be on the program. I went to Ireland twice, the last time was September, and we went in to London, direct nine-hour flight on business class, and then hopped over to Shannon Airport, and I had the greatest time in Dingle, and went on the archaeological tour. The uh, former police officer...
0: Oh, Tim, Tim of Collins. of information. Yeah. Tim Collins, right? Tim Collins. Isn't he a, a delightful man? Great character. Oh,
5: excellent, yes. And he even quoted... Uh, some Canadian poetry. My friend was from Canada and she recited it with him. (laughs) It was
0: fun. So Mary, what uh, for our listeners, uh, Dingle Peninsula, by the way, is the southwest tip of Ireland. It's my favorite little bit of uh, rural and small-town Ireland. What would the archaeological tour uh, include? Why would somebody take a half a day with a local guy on an archaeological tour?
5: Well, we got to see a lot of uh, ruins that we would have otherwise driven by and not had a clue. We went into a a beehive-type structure that was amazing that they could build something that was watertight without any grout, just rocks.
0: Now, by the way, for our listeners, these beehive structures are these um, like stone igloos built by hermit monks, sort of uh, establishing little monastic communities way on the western fringe of civilization. Stephen McPhillamy, how how long ago would that have been when these beehive huts were made?
3: Uh, These are from the early Christian era, era, so you're talking 6th century? 6th century. So this really is what Europe would be when Europe was in what a lot of people call the Dark
0: Ages, just shortly after the fall of Rome. On the west coast of Ireland, you've got uh, some of the most
3: literate communities anywhere in Europe. What do we mean by the Island of Saints and Scholars? Well, the Island of Saints and Scholars refers to when Europe was going through the Dark Ages, Ireland went through its Golden Age. So basically 6th to ninth century AD, we had a monastic culture that was flourishing with writing and teaching and there were monastic communities growing vegetables as well for themselves and just a wonderful time in Ireland. And then the Vikings came along and ruined the whole lot, as our history <laughs> books told us in school. <laughs> so, now,
0: that's interesting because the Romans didn't dare to venture into Ireland. They just wrote it off. What did they call it? The land of winter or something? Yeah, like they it? called us
3: Hibernia, land of <laughs> the cold winter.
0: <laughs> that's kind of an insult. Yeah. <laughs> Romans come in, they stand there in Wales and look over and they go, no way, that's the land of winter. Let's not let's give that a miss. But then later on,
3: the Vikings came in. And the Vikings came in and began to conquer bits and pieces around the coast of Ireland and began to build towns. We didn't really have towns before they arrived. Hmm. Celtic people didn't really live in like an urban environment. Hmm. The, the Scandinavians were happy to live with other families who were not related to them. The Celts weren't.
0: Oh, that's, that distinguishes that. Yeah,
3: we, we wanted to stay within our clan. So you'd have your cousins and his wife and your brothers, but you wouldn't have, like the Macphillames, wouldn't have lived with the Fitzpatricks. Well, you still have that. When you look at Galway, for instance, there's family forts in the middle of the town, Right. Yeah, that was the, that was the, the they were, but they were the Normans, you see. Oh, those were Normans. Yeah, because Galway was, Galway was a Norman settlement. They were an Ang- oh, okay. Anglo-Norman, we call them Anglo-Norman so families. So those were
0: just Vikings indirect,
3: Normans. Yeah, that's true, yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's a, they changed us totally, but the Island of Saints and Scholars was when, you know, we had this monastic society going on, and there were monks who wanted to get away from the monastic society and be on their own, and they went out to the far western fringes and lived in these beehive huts. They were like the Navy Seals of monasticism. That's amazing. That is really a distant and a bleak environment. Uh, I suppose it's a good place to just focus on your on your scriptures if you're a, a monk. Exactly. They wanted to get away from all the mainstream.
0: Mary, do you have Irish heritage? Was that any part of your trip?
5: Oh, that was a big part of the trip. I have family that uh, came from County Leitrim, and I went to Sligo. Sligo, yeah. And they have places that will help you research your family tree, and she, the woman researcher was amazing, spent a couple hours with me, showed me maps of where my relatives had been married, where they, were, where they had been living.
0: As a tourist, you can drop by the uh, genealogical center there in Sligo, and they actually take you by the hand and help you put together your Irish family tree.
5: Yes, actually, I had emailed several, They have, have them in, in many, many places in Ireland, and I had emailed several to find out which one would be the best one on my trip. To go see, and so I, when I arrived, they said, "Oh, you're married. <laughs> we're expecting you." And they were ready with lots of information. And how far back can you? How
0: far back can you trace your family tree?
5: Um, gee, I don't remember the actual year, but uh, just the fact that I knew I could find that family came from Drum Shambo and County Leitrim. That was
3: yeah.
5: amazing to me to be able in the same place that my relatives had been hundreds of years ago.
3: It's a wonderful new growing industry we have, you know, the tracing of roots. We've we've always had it, but now with the internet, you see, it's made it all so much easier. And I've never heard anybody who went looking for their ancestors and linked up with an Irish genealogist who didn't say they weren't, they were great, you know, they weren't great. They're always, they've always been great, good, talented genealogists and people have always been happy with the service provided. Wonderful. Well,
5: just the ordinary Irish person was helpful. At bed and breakfast, they'd asked me what if I had roots there and if it, it felt familiar to be back, and they tried to search online, and they also... I took the pictures of my gra- great-great-great-grandparents with me and showed them around and um, asked if they recognized them or knew of them, and um, they're very helpful. They showed me a, a picture of like the innkeeper with the former prime minister of Ireland, whose last name was the same as my relative. said, well, does he look familiar? Does he look uh, like he might be a relative? And I also emailed the Ireland Tourism, and they said that's not unusual that they've heard of people going into a pub showing a picture of a relative, and the, the person... You know, practically screamed out, "That's my grandfather!" <laughs>
0: that's crazy. So it's, yeah. you
5: don't know where you're going to find the best information.
0: Well, you know, any time you have an excuse to connect with the Irish people in your travels, it's uh, whether it's looking up your family tree or, yeah. or just looking for the best uh, glass of uh, beer or, or whatever. That is an excuse to connect with the people, and in Ireland, that's richly rewarding. Absolutely. Hey, Mary, thanks for your call. Yeah, well,
5: thank you for listening. Appreciate
0: it. You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Stephen McPhillamy and Pascal Fitzpatrick about their country, Ireland. Stephen and Pascal, can we wrap it up just with uh, a last thought from you? Uh, If people are thinking about Ireland uh, and uh, want to get the most out of it, have a meaningful experience, uh, Pascal, what would you be sure we're mindful of?
4: We we took a bad turn there after the Celtic Tiger, but Ireland's back open for business and there's just a great vibe in Ireland at the moment. Make sure you get out of the big cities and get into the villages and connect with the real Irish people.
0: So you had that incredible spike up with the Celtic Tiger and everything was booming and in a way it was kind of a false economy and then the bottom fell out and it went bam, right to the bottom and you had a very difficult recession and now there's a positive feeling with the economy and the
4: general vibe in the country. There's a great positive feeling, yeah.
3: Stephen? Well, I think Ireland has everything that a person would need to take a box for their holiday. There's, There's the scenery, the food. The only thing we don't have, of course, is the great sunny weather but I would ask you to remember that Ireland is not a sun destination, it's a fun destination. You sound like you've been hired by the tourist board. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, for what it lacks in sun, you more than make up in fun.
0: fun. Stephen McFillamy, I'm in a pub, making friends with some Irish guys from just across the town. I just bought him a beer. How can I give him a good toast?
3: You could say sláinte, which means to your good health. Or you could say, Conglora je agusanora naheron, which means for the glory of God and the honor of Ireland. I think I'll say slancha, <laughs> to your health, in a good Gaelic accent. Slancha. And slantia. thank you slantia. would be Gore of Mahagot. Gore is slancha. Go ro ma agot. Four go, words. Go ro maith And we also have an expression in Irish, go and Bohorlat, which means may the road rise to meet you. Well, thank you. And I'll go to Ireland and look for exactly that. Thanks, both of you. Happy travels. Thanks, Rick.
6: I close my eyes and picture the emerald of the sea from the fishing boats at Dingo to the shores of Dunedee. I miss the River Shannon and the folks at Skibbereen the Moorlands. And the metal With their 40 shades of green
0: At first glance, the scores of languages spoken across Europe can be intimidating to the average English speaker. But start to notice the characteristics of different languages and how they reflect the cultures of those speaking them. Then you might find that the language barrier can also be an invitation. Gaston Dorns from the Netherlands, he joins us next with revealing tales of historical quirks and the different personalities you can get to know in any of 60 different European languages. We're at 877 333 7425, and you can email us at radio at Growing up speaking the dialect of Limburg, that's where the Netherlands meets Belgium and Germany, it's no surprise that Gaston Dorn picked up a knack for what he calls language spotting. He's a linguist and journalist, and his book, Lingo, features amusing tales from five dozen languages, languages that define the nations of Europe. It's just been released in North America. Gaston joins us now from studios in Hilversum in Holland. Gaston, thanks for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure. So when you say language spotting, what do you mean exactly by that? What I mean is that when I'm abroad or in a different language area, I will always be on the lookout for differences, for interesting things that I hear, that I see.
0: So what is, what's a good example of something fun you discovered as you were collecting ideas for your book? Something a little fun insight into the culture we might learn just by the way people uh, put their words together.
1: Well, one thing that struck me is that uh, in Italian, for instance, it struck me that I use this enormous number of diminutive, that is, words that refer to small things, right? Yeah. Like donina, that would be a small woman, uh, literally. But when I studied that a bit, when I looked into it, I discovered that what I really mean is a cute woman or a woman that do not take so seriously or a pretty woman or whatever. And it turned out they have very many of these diminutives, many more than, for instance, in my own language. In Italy, they just if somebody is just
0: over the top in general, they nickname that person "issimo." They're just so Isimo. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's yeah. fun. What's the news, if you looked at, as a linguist, if you looked at uh, Europe this century, what's the news about languages and how they evolve in Europe these days?
1: One of the big changes over the last, well, century, let's say, is the, not so much the disappearance, but the leveling off of dialects. Dialects of all these languages are becoming more similar, more like each other, Mm -hmm. and more so in some countries than in others. For instance, in, in Denmark, there are hardly any dialects left, whereas in Britain, they're still sort of alive and kicking. Uh, But of all of Europe, that's that's a tendency, a trend. But now, wouldn't that be a a national decision? I understand
0: in Britain, they make a point to still have the dialects on the evening news, for instance. So in each region, you'd have the local dialect alive in the media.
1: Yeah, correct. And it's even more extreme in Norway, where everybody at any occasion will speak the local dialect, even when uh, Mm. doing a, a program like this, like we're doing now. It is partly policy, but of course, before the 20th century, there was no policy needed because dialects were just there, they were not disappearing, they were very much alive.
0: When you think about Europe, I think of it as a family of languages. And you've got Slavic languages, and you've got uh, Romance languages, and you've got Germanic languages. If you were going to draw or create a, a language tree of European languages, tell us what it would look like.
1: Well, the three families that you mentioned would definitely be three very major branches of the big, big tree called Indo-European. I mean, Romance and Germanic and uh, Slavic are all Indo-European languages. There are some smaller branches too, like Greek and Albanian and uh, Armenian, for instance, but they're very minor. And then there are some unrelated, uh, what you like to call them, bushes maybe, on the side, like the family to which Finnish and Hungarian uh, belong, called Uralic. So these would be just apart from the tree altogether. That's correct, yes.
0: Now, there's a couple of little languages that I've encountered. There's a tiny language in Switzerland and a tiny language in the north of Italy that I understand are directly connected with Latin. Can you describe those two languages?
1: Yes, the one in Switzerland is called Romance, and it, it is small and shrinking, but... It is one of the national languages of Switzerland, so you will you will even find the language on, you know, like banknotes. There is also a related language, as you say, in the north of Italy. There are actually two. One is Ladino. But just by the name Ladino, is it, my image is, both of these would just be a little bit of
0: a anomaly where the ancient Latin actually burrowed itself into the mountains and it didn't <laughs> go with the mainstream as the modern languages developed. But what, what is it about those
1: languages? Because they are related to Latin, aren't they? Yeah, but I must disappoint you a bit, okay? in the the sense that they are not closer related to language, uh, to Latin, sorry, than, let's say, Italian would be. It's just that they are very different from Italian and very different from Spanish, etc. And because they are spoken in these small valleys, these isolated valleys, they have never developed into a large language. They've remained... Very much, they've kept themselves to themselves, so to speak. So a lot of that is determined by the ruggedness of the of the geography, I
0: would imagine. Switzerland is a small country with four languages. If it was one big flat plain, would it have four languages?
1: Well, I'm not sure about Switzerland, but a good example is Slovenia to the east, which has one language, Slovene, but has a tremendous amount of dialects which apparently are very, very different from one mm-hmm. another. Whereas in Russia, which is large and flat I mean, that's a huge country, but the language differences, I mean, the dialect differences in Mm. Russia are very limited. People from the extreme West can easily chat with people from the extreme East.
0: No problem. So the weather blows through and the uniform linguistics blow through. Our guest is linguist and journalist Gaston Doran. He makes his home in the Netherlands. His book is Lingo, Around Europe in 60 Languages. It features tales of Europe's history and culture through its dialects and languages. His website is languagewriter.com. Jennifer's calling in from San Francisco with a comment, and our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Jennifer, thanks for your call.
6: Yes, hi. I just did want to mention that in light of the conversation, the dialogue about Ladino, that that is also the language that is spoken still today by the Sephardic Jews who are forced entering during uh, the Spanish Inquisition. So that language has its own very rich, uh, very, very intense history. Hmm. And my question for today's guest is Has he ever heard the type of English spoken in the Netherlands, which is still today referred to, much like the jump rope game played by children, as Double Dutch?
0: Gaston, do you know Double Dutch as a dialect? Frankly, I am a bit baffled there. What's your definition, Jennifer, of Double Dutch?
6: Well, it, it's the way that even the Dutch themselves, in fact, refer to the kind of English they speak when they think they're speaking English, but it isn't quite correct, you know. And, ah, and indeed, okay. it's just often unintelligible. So it's called it's called double Dutch, meaning it's they think it's English, but it's really another version of, of Dutch.
1: Okay. Ah. Nowadays, usually say when we speak bad English is coal Dutch, as in you know the coal you burn in the. Uh well,
6: why would it be called coal, coal Dutch? What is the origin of that phrase?
1: I think it was because workers in the harbor who would load and unload coal would speak that sort of Dutch with the captains of the ships, something like that. That would, mm-hmm. that would make sense. But if I may add something about Ladino, because there is a bit of a mix-up in that there are, very confusingly, two languages called Ladino, and mm-hmm. one is, as Jennifer says, uh, spoken by uh, Sephardic Jews, and the other is spoken in the north of Italy, but they are not... Well, they're related in the sense that they're both Romance languages, but they're not uh, mutually intelligible.
0: Right, right. Hey, Jennifer, thanks for your call. Thank you. You bet. And Mercedes emails us in New York City, and Mercedes says, what's the latest theory on the origins and linguistic roots of the Basque language? You know, Basque is just this odd, unrelated language lodged in between the Spanish and the French speakers, where Spain and France hit the Atlantic. How did that land up there?
1: Well what we do know for a fact is that in Roman times so about the year 1 let's say or even earlier than that a closely related language was spoken there in that area so it is indeed very old and it is assumed that Basque or you know the ancestor of Basque was already spoken before the Indo-Europeans arrived which is about 4 or 5000 years ago but Obviously, we don't have any, any written records from those days, so it is a bit of a mystery. It, it might well be the language spoken ever since anatomically modern man and woman arrived in Europe. Uh, we just don't know. So I had this image of tribes
0: being pushed around. There's bully tribes and there's weak tribes, and they, they roam around here before there were fixed borders, and the Magyars settled in Hungary, and today they speak a language unrelated to the, the tribes around them and so on. But in this case, the Basque were already there, and and people just settled around them. But this was, if there was an indigenous
1: language of Europe, that might have been one of them? Correct. You mentioned mountains earlier on, and and valleys. Well, nowadays, they mostly live in valleys, and that's where they were sort of safe from the intruding uh, Romance speakers, the French and the Spaniards, and well, Mm -hmm. before that, the Romans themselves. Are the
0: small languages growing, or are they shrinking, or are they just kind of maintaining
1: when by small you mean minority languages, so not national languages, they're under threat everywhere, I think, because people are tempted to speak the national language because it will it will get them further. I mean, I'm a case in point. I, I grew up with this uh, Limburgish that you mentioned at the beginning. Uh, but at school I learned I speak Dutch. I have to speak Dutch. And if I want to get places in Holland, I need Dutch. And if I want to get places in the world, I need English. Mm-hmm. So that's the same pressure for everybody everywhere. But when you mean small national languages, such as Estonian, let's say, which has only just over a million speakers, they're pretty safe. Hmm. I mean, Estonians can lead their daily lives in Estonian, and they can even read European Union documents in Estonian, and I'm sure there are lots of websites in Estonian. What's the
0: European Union government take on protecting small languages? Do they do anything to help defend these little languages? And even the regional languages, rather than the national languages, are they concerned about the, the survival
1: They are. They tend to be rather protective of small languages. Well, one thing that you probably know is that Europe has at the moment 24 official languages, which are the official languages of all of the member states. And some regional languages, such as Welsh in in the United Kingdom, also have a certain status, though not quite the same high status. And there's a commissioner for the protection of smaller languages. So they consider it part, I think, of the cultural policy protection of heritage, cultural heritage, all of that, which I applaud.
0: Yes, I think that's very important, Gustin. And in your mind, are there some critical tools that help a language survive, like to have a newspaper or radio or a university? Uh, when does a small language become fatally small and it's doomed to disappear within a couple
1: generations? Well, the, the last step, obviously, is when parents stop transferring it to their children, when they think, nah, I will not uh, speak this language to my children. It will not get them anywhere. I will just speak a bigger language. Yeah. But that's a, that's the a last step. And I think you were referring to an earlier stage. Um, this is a personal view. I mean, this is what I'm going to say now, but there's a lot of discussion about this. Something that worries me is that in Holland here, in education, even at a young age, English is becoming more and more important. And while I want everybody to speak good English. I fear that uh, students and young children will not even learn the Dutch words for certain scientific mm. concepts, for instance. Mm. I mean, they will end up saying oxygen instead of zuurstof. Well, now, this may not be a great loss in the grand scheme of things, but as somebody who, who cherishes this language, I, I do worry a bit about that.
0: I've often wondered that myself because I fly into the airport at Schiphol uh, near Amsterdam, and mm-hmm. I've noticed in the last decade the signs have gone from Dutch and English, in some cases, to only English in the airport. And they don't even have the You're Dutch absolutely signs absolutely right. Up. Have you noticed that?
1: Oh, yes. I, I noticed that a lot. That's uh, a huge step. Yeah. Earlier this year, I was in Valencia in, uh, in Eastern Spain, where they speak something that they call Valencian, but that most people consider Catalan. Mm-hmm. And on their airport signs, it would be Catalan first, Spanish second, and uh, English third. Catalan would be on top. And I think that's
0: a powerful symbol. Oh, yeah. When I go to an ATM machine in Barcelona, you see four Spanish languages, Catalan, Español, Galician, and Basque. Ah, okay. I've, I've even been in a subway sandwich shop in Madrid where the languages are in four languages and they're the Spanish languages. So there must be some interest in keeping those languages going because uh, I would imagine people could order a sandwich in, in Spanish, but
1: <laughs> I'm sure they could. But,
0: yes. um, you know, you, you notice a, a, an evolution on the other hand in Europe where menus now do not have the top four languages. They'll have the local language and English. I think in the last generation, mm-hmm. English has pretty much become the go-to language when you have an alternative.
1: Well, except in New York, of course, where everything is English and Spanish now, I think.
0: (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking lingo. That's the book. Gaston Doran is the specialist in languages. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Carol's calling from Florida. Carol, thanks for your call.
6: Yes. I was wondering, what is the most offensive thing that Americans do when we try to communicate with local people?
0: (laughs) Right. must have a whole chapter on that. (laughs)
6: I think I've been guilty of some things, and I'm I'm not sure what, though.
1: I'm not so sure. I mean, Americans tend to be so direct and talkative and charming that uh, you cannot really uh, hold anything against them. Um, What may offend some people, though not in Holland, is assuming that the other person will speak English, even though you haven't checked. Uh, I mean, that would probably be a problem in, let's say, France or Croatia or Spain, uh, I'm not sure if it's offensive, but it's
0: awkward. <laughs> you know, Gaston, I have that interesting uh, little struggle myself because I don't want to be rude, especially in the Netherlands where any educated person will speak English. I still ask, do you speak English? When you hear that, do you find that to be polite or do you find that just to be nonsense?
1: Like, of course I speak English, I'm educated. Uh, it's polite. It's like asking somebody, can I ask you a question? I mean, that's also a nonsensical yeah. thing because when you do <laughs> you that, just you've did. just done it. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's polite.
0: <laughs> that's good. I like that. For me, one of the most offensive things in my ear is when people are in Italy and they speak Spanish to Italians because they feel (laughs) for some reason the Italians will understand that one or when or vice versa when you're in Spain
1: and you speak Italian it's just like it's not English so they've got to understand it the the other day I was in Rome and I heard Spaniards and Italians actually speaking English to each other and that surprised me I I assumed that they would try and mix their own languages but they didn't well that's sort of that's what happens now when you know when when two
0: people from two small languages meet they communicate in English Carol thanks for your call Thank you. Sorry, are you going to claim that Spanish is a small language? <laughs> oh, no, yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's a very good point. Spanish is far from a small language. Gaston, when you think about English, how it settled in Europe and, and how it evolved, in your book you talk about how Danish helped lay the foundation for English. Uh, what's the brief history of English, the language that we speak?
1: Oh, the briefest history is... In the 5th century, the people from northern Germany, the Angles and the Saxons, moved to Britain. I mean, that's a well-known story, right? Right. Uh, the Celtic people who used to be there and who will remain there are uh, driven to the west, or they will just adopt the Anglo-Saxon tongue. Then 1066, William the Conqueror comes to Britain, conquers it, and adds a whole lot of French to the English language. And then I've skipped one thing, namely uh, a century before that. The Vikings moved to Britain, to Scotland mostly, northern England and added a whole lot of Norwegian and Swedish words to the English language. So what we have now is a mixture of Northern German, French, Viking, Norwegian, and a whole lot of Latin and Greek thrown into the mixture, as well as words taken from India and Holland and Hmm. the Amerindians. And as one famous American linguist said, English is our magnificent bastard tongue. And that's true. Like a mutt, like a dog with many different bloods in it. Exactly, yes. (laughs) But a lovely one. (laughs) The basic vocabulary is still very much German, even uh-huh. though the word very actually is French. But much of the slightly less literary or mm-hmm. stylish uh, vocabulary is, uh, is, is Romance, is French.
0: I always think it's interesting that a language will evolve to suit the needs of its people. You know, there's probably only one word for ice in, uh, in the island of Crete, but in Norway <laughs> you'd have different words for, for snow. In your country, the Netherlands, is there more than one way to say ice because of all of the fine ways you can
1: skate on it? There are several words for ice, both ice and for holes in the ice. Oh yeah. Because of course when you when you're skating you want to avoid the holes and you want to know where they are and it makes a lot of sense to know that they can be under bridges or in places where there are a hot water spring where it won't freeze over. So, yes, they do have words, but I am I want to question a bit your assumption that when people have a lot of dealings with a certain phenomenon, they will have a lot of words for it. It's, uh-huh. it's not necessarily true. Okay. When you compare Eskimo or Inuit words for snow with the English words for snow, there's really not much difference in numbers. I mean, the, the Inuit apparently, according to very reputable linguists, do not have all that many words for snow, but they can make sentences talking about snow, maybe with more detail than we do. Well, so that overcomes that misperception. Yes, there's actually a famous book, The Great Inuit uh, Snow Word Hoax, or something like that.
0: Okay. Let's just finish very quickly. I'm going to say a language, and you've got a couple of
1: lessons that I found really fun.
0: If you say French, you call French, um, it has a mother...
1: Mother f- complex. A mother complex. What do you mean by that? I mean by that that it has never separated itself really from from Latin. It still wants to spell the words like Latin. It wants to draw on latin for new vocabulary
0: oh so it's hanging onto its mother language okay and finnish you say is the easiest of all the languages to spell yeah to spell that's correct because they really spell it the way you pronounce it so you can do better in a spelling bee if you grew up in uh, in finland everybody's a winner there (laughs) everybody's a winner in iceland uh you say it's the language frozen in time correct yes
1: contemporary Icelandic is very much like the Norwegian of a thousand years ago obviously it's not identical it has new words for subway and iPad but right. it is very similar to old Norwegian that's a great
0: example of how language helps us get a little insight into the many cultures of Europe Gaston Dorn thank you very much and best wishes with your book Lingo thank you it's been my pleasure hey!
1: Together and what do you got? Travel with Rick Steves is produced by yours truly, Tim Tatton, with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to the DB Media Group in Hilversum, Holland for studio help this week. You'll find more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support
0: for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next adventure in Great Britain or Ireland, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.